Voice Nation. Greetings and tour me kits, everybody. I hope you're having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. This is Kevin Brown, and I've been trying to reach you regarding your vehicle's extended warranty. So here we are. What's it going to take to earn your business today? You ever hear that line? Well, one line I can honestly say I've never heard in my rep life or any other life for that matter. I was in a hospital receiving area the other day when one of the employees showed me a requisition that came from another department with three words on it. Yes, those three words were tour knee kits. I had to read it a few times before the comedy fully set in, clearly the result of someone transcribing what they thought they heard. Hey, get us some tourniquets down here, stat. After the application of Lower Alabama closed captioning, okay, tour knee kits. Got it. I felt like I got handy gold, Jerry. Pure gold. I could not help myself. I went to the purchasing agent and volunteered my services because we're all about being a partner, not a peddler. And I said with the straightest face that I could put together, look, I understand you guys are looking for tour knee kits. I just wanted you to know that I can source you tour hip kits, which basically have the same exact components as the knee kits, but they're 25% cheaper. (laughs) I will find out tomorrow if my hospital credentials got revoked over that one. Well, there's no need for limb exsanguination prior to tour knee kit application here at Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics, as we provide a bloodless field every episode for your listening pleasure. And what a pleasure we have on tap for you today, fellow box openers, a conversation with two charter members of our North Carolina Not-So-Secret Society, Wake Forest Baptist Chair of Orthopedic Surgery back in Winston-Salem, Dr. Andrew Komen. Trust me, this man is a living legend. You're going to want to hang around for his inspiring life story. But up first, a conversation with another living legend on our side of the operative table, someone I can and honestly say, I was honored to work alongside and get to know the man who put the he in Hedracel, making everyone green with envy, selling Palico Charlotte rep slash distributor slash VP of sales. He's done it all. Fred Anderson, welcome to the show, sir. My pleasure, Kevin. Fred, you've had an amazing career, impacted a lot of lives. I want to talk about what you're doing these days and what has you excited. But first, let's go back. How did you get into this crazy business? Well, you know, I was born in a log cabin. And then I was in the packaging business and I was giving a presentation about Tyvek medical packaging. It had just come out. And someone in the audience was a guy named Mike Masterman, and he was the Centaur rep in North Carolina and South Carolina. And he's an old friend and he decided he wanted to go work for Depew and said, you need to interview for my job. And I said, OK. And I called up George Baxter, whom you know. Yeah. And Mr. Baxter said, Fred, uh, Zimmer has just been acquired by Bristol Myers, and I think you need to call this number right here. And it was the Centaur number for Bruce Peterson. So I called Bruce Peterson, and he came down and interviewed me, and I was, and Mike left, and I took the Centaur job, and I was the total joint sales rep for North and South Carolina by myself. That's how different the business was. Wow. We had business at Duke with Dr. McCollum which was a very, very important account to them. So they watched it closely. We had Charlotte business and we had Columbia and that was it. And we were not covering cases back then, Kevin. We were making sure they had inventory and instrumentation. If 
if you call it instrumentation. It was so different back then. I would go into orthopedic hospital with one cardboard box under my arm. It had the instruments, the implants, and a purchase order. I would give the, the box to Nancy Finley. She would take it back. Dr. Angus McBride would do his case. I'd come back the next day, pick the box up. It had the instruments, the implants, other than the ones that were used, and a purchase order. And I would go down to uh, purchasing and smoke a cigarette with a purchasing girl. <laughs> and then I'd leave and go do it again somewhere else. All, all we were making sure was that the doctors had what they need and they would figure out how to do the case. Fred, I know a lot of people listening have never heard the word Centaur in their life. Centaur was a company started by Johnson & Johnson in 1980, probably 78, when osteonics came to light, Biomet came to light, and Centaur came online. 78 was probably the biggest growth year for orthopedics that there was in the, since the beginning. So Johnson & Johnson started a company like Centaur, and they treated it kind of like Codman. It was a division of J&J. &J. And then in 1982, I joined them in 80. And in 82, we were in Ennisbrook, Florida, and a big ball came down over the lake and lit up the lake just like J&J &J could do with Johnson & Johnson Orthopedics. And that was the night Johnson & Johnson Orthopedics was launched. Wow. The best thing about Johnson & Johnson was my training. Back then, they believed in train the trainer. So I was sent to Philadelphia. I wanted to go to Atlanta, but they sent me to Philadelphia for a month. And I worked with a great sales rep. And as J&J &J always thought, you never know a product better than when you teach it. And I still believe that to this day. And Dave Ozello taught me the business. Dr. Uh, Rothman was our consultant. And we had to go in and see Dr. Dick Rothman do two cases a week. It's a six and a half hour Charlie. Take down the greater true canner, do everything that he did. And I mean, I froze my butt off. And that's how we were trained. And then we came back into the territory and obviously pretty, pretty well trained. And then I took over for uh, North Carolina and South Carolina and just started making calls, trying to introduce myself to as many people as I could. And many of them, I'd say 90% of the calls I made, Kevin, the guy did not, I wasn't trying to get Zimmer's joints or Helmetica's joints. I was trying to get him to do one. <laughs> and he'd go, Fred. I don't know how to do them. And I said, well, doctor, <laughs> hell, I was a history major. We can do this. <laughs> so in, in the early 80s, it was really just a service job. And then here they come, the residents that were trained how to do total joints in their residency. And then the fellows were coming back. And everything changed because it, it wasn't that the reps were necessary to the surgeon. They were necessary to the back table. These surgeons coming in going, hand me the uh, such and such. So they have no idea what they were. So they brought the reps in. Can you help us? And we said, yes. So we stood in the back of the room. Everybody was scared to death because we weren't hired. When we were hired, we were not hired to cover cases. The old reps, the ones that were uh, like Zimmer and Helmetica, they scattered like cockroaches. They just didn't know how to do that. So we started covering cases in the mid-80s. To your point about train the trainer, I think my career really changed when I went up to Zimmer on a regular basis just to help train young reps. And there's something so powerful about that exchange of information to the, the freshman class. It, it helps them, but it really helps the teacher even more, doesn't it? Yes, and it's not only product knowledge, it's behavior. I remember when I was young, I used to say, 
to the young reps, there's somebody's grandmother on that table. You need to pay attention and give that patient the respect and attention it deserves. And I still feel the same way. I think one of the worst things that's happened to the rep industry is the cell phone. It's so easily distracting for a rep in the room. And I know that I know I'm an old school, but that patient still deserves the attention. So you didn't bring a bag phone into surgery with you, Fred? No, no, I didn't know how to use it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Fred, I know the first time I ever heard your name was actually associated with a company that has now been folded into Stryker, Osteonics. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your experience there. I had a manager at Centaur at J&J who went to work for Osteonics up in Allendale, New Jersey. She, for some reason, liked me, and she called me and said, we've got an opening in Southeast. I was going to be a regional product specialist. I, I took the job. When I went to work for Osteonics, the national number for sales was $12 million. So I went as a, as a territory specialist I had from North Carolina down to Florida. And so I worked with some real characters. You talk about people that probably should not have been distributors was back in then because they didn't, they needed help and they, they just took anybody. But I learned what not to do more than I learned what to do. So Osteonics was a great run. And and in 1984, Stryker bought Osteonics, but they told Bob, Bob uh, Averill and Alex Coelho, you've got 10 years before we come in and take you over. And I'll have to the, to the day I die, I'll tell you, they did exactly that. They stayed away. We grew that business to over $300 million. And in 1994, Stryker came in and took everybody's position away from them, changed its spot. As a, as a uh, territory specialist, I had an opportunity to become a distributor up here in North Carolina. So I worked as a, as a distributor for osteonics for 17 years, and it was, it was great fun. Well, another word that a lot of young device reps may have never heard is hydrocell. Tell us about your yeah. experience with that. In 1997, I decided to leave, and I was going to go into real estate. I said, you'll never see me in a pair of scrubs again. <laughs> You know, big talk, big talk. So a guy named John Kramer called me about a company called Implex. It was Bob Averill and Alex Coelho, who were the two top people at Osteonic, started this company called Implex. And they came up with a product called Hydrocell. It was designed for filters for jet engines in the desert. Bob ran into it and it looked just like trabecular bone. So he took Hydrocell and started doing studies on bone and, you know, on rabbits and everything you could. And so they made total joints out of it. We were growing, growing, growing. And then Ray Elliott, president of Zimmer, decided we're going to go buy this company. So they bought it and changed the name of Hydrocell to Trabecular Metal. And Trabecular Metal is now regarded as probably the best metal bone filler substitute ever created. So when Zimmer bought Implex, I didn't know what I was going to do. I had no idea. So Rich Greenhagen, the distributor here, said, I want you to be my trabecular metal specialist. So I said, great, that's perfect for me. And so I did that for about a year. And then I had an opportunity to become a sales manager for Zimmer Carolinas. But it has been a wonderful, wonderful run. Well, tell us, Fred, what are you doing right now? I was selected to run South Carolina for Zimmer Biomet. The reason why South Carolina is always attached to North Carolina and distributors is because South Carolina can't stand on its own. It's just one of those states. It's very difficult to, in South Carolina, either you're in or you're out. And if you're out, it's hard to get back in. You know South Carolina as well as I do. And so I took South Carolina for Zimmer Biomet. And so I went down there and worked for a couple of years trying to, uh, the only reason I did it was for my guys. I loved every one of them. I hired most of them. And, uh, I did everything I could to keep them in place. We had seven people walk out in two months. Who's going to cover those cases? So we uh, we we pulled it off, but it just wasn't a fit. And uh, 
So I decided to leave. So I was kicking around doing just anything I could. And Horaeus decided that they were going to separate from Zimmer also with Palico's Bone Cement. So Horaeus called me and said, would you like to help us? And I said, I've got a non-compete that I will not break because I'm telling you, Kevin, Zimmer Biomet was good to me. They were fair. They were very good to me. And I said, I have a a non-compete that I will not touch and I can't do it. And they said, well, we'll be back. And I said, now, that's the last I'll hear from them. A year after that, they called and said, would you like to, to do this? And I said, well, I'd love to talk to you. So I've been with Horaeus for about four years now. I'm selling the most widely tested, trusted, and used bone cement in the world. And I could not be happier to finish my career with the best orthopedic product I've ever sold. Horaeus is a great company and yes, definitely hit a home run with that one. As you look back... Over your career, Fred, I mean, you certainly could have gone into any other field, real estate, certainly. What kept you coming back to orthopedic device? I would say mainly the orthopedic surgeons. Orthopedic surgeons are not brain surgeons. 99.9% of them are great guys. Most of them are ex-jocks or think they're ex-jocks. And they're friends. Uh, Relationships that I had with the orthopedic surgeons still to this day are are some of my favorite relationships in my life. I enjoyed helping patients. I really enjoyed that. I mean, it was important to do this. And and especially in the beginning when we were, as Dr. Wayne Lee used to say, Freddie, I want you to meet Shirley. And she was in a wheelchair. And he said, we're going to take Shirley from the wheelchair to the dance floor. And he did. And I'll never forget those unbelievably successful cases because you know, over 90% of the people that have total joints are happier than before they had them, even if they're they're not perfect. They're still happier. So it was a fun place to be because it was so successful. Any cases out there that still keep you up at night, Fred? There are five probably in my life. And one was with Implex, with trabecular metal. We were putting the cup in over at Maine in Charlotte. Two doctors were doing it, and my mentor was one of them. As a matter of fact, he just died just last month, and it was Dr. Humphreys when, when I met him. And it was Dr. Humphreys when I left him a message on his uh, obituary sheet. But we put the cup in, and Kevin, I've never seen anything like this in my life. We couldn't get the inserter off the cup, and we couldn't get the cup out of the acetabulum. It was so tight and so in there. And then finally, the other doctor just grabbed it and pulled it out, and we said, okay. And the, and the cup came right off. So he said, well, I must have been impinged on the labrum or you know, blah, blah, blah. Let's give me that cup back. So they, we put it back in. He checked all around the edges of the cup, and it wouldn't come off the inserter. And this was a young patient, a really young patient. As you know how it is, sitting over there in the corner, dying a million deaths, just yes. praying. I bet you I said the, the uh, 23rd Psalm a thousand times. <laughs> and we just couldn't, and he, and he got it out, and the cup came off, and then things really went south. And as I've always told sales reps, there are two people that can pull a, a crashing case out. That is the surgical team, and the sales rep is as much a surgical part of that surgical team. And this was one I couldn't pull out. It, you know, usually, you know, you feel like a hero and, and everything works out, but this one didn't work out. So they had to cement it and it, it protrude. I mean, I just, I could go into how bad the case was. When you let your mentor down and he's looking at you like, I'm doing this as much for you as I'm doing it for the patient, 
you know, because you've helped me. And uh, oh, it was just awful. Still, it's to this day, it haunts me. That is so true. You you start to collect these stories that uh, mm-hmm. you wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it every now and then. and Especially when you let somebody down and it's the main person you let down is the patient. There is truly no more lonely feeling in the world than being in a routine poly swap. Those are always good for these kind of situations and realizing, Houston, we've got a problem. I've tried to tra- train every sales rep. There's a huge difference between a problem and a surprise. Let's just say your zero head is on back order. That surgeon has to know that if the last place that he could be told is at the scrub sink, doctor, the zero heads are on back order, but everything else is here. He'll go, okay, I can handle that. But if he's in the room and he says, hand me a zero head and you say, I don't have one, that's a surprise. He's already prepared the femur to, to take a zero head and you don't have one. That's the last time you will ever work with that surgeon. Don't ever surprise them because they don't like it any more than we do. Any thoughts on where we are right now in terms of training this freshman class? I think the way that we're training sales reps has got major flaws. And it's just like J&J. They sent me to Philadelphia to be trained because they selected Dave Ozello as a trainer. And I was up there for a month under his guidance. And I, I still go back to some of the things Dave taught me. And he, to be honest with you, he was younger than me when, when I went up there. I said, what's this all about? It was a great experience for me to learn like that. I got Dr. Rothman helping me. I had Dr. Nixon. I can remember all of them like yesterday. But now you just throw them into the wolves. You learn by um, through fire. No, you don't. You need to teach these people the right way to conduct themselves and, and to respect that person on that table. Any thoughts on rep conduct in the hospital? You work in the hospital, but you don't work for the hospital. So you've got to know all the ins and out regulations and, and rules for five. Let's just say that a, a rep handles four different hospitals. That's a lot to know all the rules and regulations of every hospital. But that's your that's your responsibility. You are a guest in that hospital and you need to act accordingly. One thing I've heard you talk about throughout your career is the Murphy's Law of medical device, right? How surgery finds a hole. You want to expand on that? If you have a hole in your instrumentation or your or your uh, implants going into surgery, believe me, if you have a hole in either one of them, surgery is going to find it. It's just unbelievable how that happens. Okay, the only thing we can use here is a 56 cup. Doctor, that's the only thing I don't have. I mean, it is, it's happened to me a thousand times. Know your business and know what you don't have as much as you do. Doctor, you've got everything you need. I remember one time, do the case before the case. I did a total knee and I saw that everything was there. Everything was there. And the doctor said, okay, somebody give me the patella clamp. You know, as well as I do, Kevin, you're, you're just about ready to write the PO when the patella clamps has four. And it, they couldn't find it. And I said, it's there. And the doctor said, Fred, it's not here. Where's the patella clamp? And I said, it's there. And he was just, he was very upset with me. And then finally some uh, scrub said, here it is. It was down in one of the folds of the drapes. I knew it was there. You got, you got to do your job before the, before the case. Do the case in your mind. Go to look at your inventory. Okay, he's going to ream, rasp, and a hip, ream, rasp. Okay, everything's there. Reamers are there. Rasps are there. The cheese graters are there. Blah, blah, blah. There's his, there's his special tray ready to go. And I guarantee you, if he says, where's my left-handed cob gouge? 
It's there. I don't know about the rest of my audience there, Fred, but I wrote that down. I'm going to get somebody to help me this week locate a left-handed cop couch. Any thoughts on where we are with that surgeon to rep relationship these days? The thing that we're missing that we that you and I had the chance to do is mentoring from from surgeons. Kevin, they don't have the time now. They're trying to make a living for their family. In my day, she we'd sit and talk in the um OR lounge, probably smoke a cigarette. <laughs> Um, you know, and we talked and he, and if, if something went wrong in surgery, Dr. Humphreys would sit me down and say, let's talk about what went wrong. Now the doctor just leaves. He's mad and he leaves. You know, we don't have the time. And, and obviously you're talking about the staff, hell the staff, I, I go in hospitals now and I'm completely bowled over about how everything's changed. It's just, you know, it's just clinical now. It's not personal. It's clinical. I mean, it's not their fault. They, they've got all kind of pressures on them to get the job done in a very, difficult environment being post-COVID or whatever it was. But I think it was heading that direction anyhow. It's it's get the cases done and get to the next one. That's very profound, Fred. I remember uh, two names early in my career, Drs. Appert and Jeanette and Wilson, mm-hmm. North Carolina. That they really took me under their wing and taught me the procedure, let me ask them the dumbest questions in the world. And, and we're really invested in my success. And you're right. I think it's just a function of time now. There's just not the margin to do that anymore. Well, you see people like Dr. Jeanette, whom we all respected. Once he retired from Wilson, he went to the VA to see if he could help other younger people, other young people up in Durham. He probably didn't need to do that, but he, he wanted to be part of the program. That those guys were teachers. Nice little trip down memory <laughs> lane. Give us a lay of the land in 2022 in orthopedic device. I go to joint conference at Ortho Carolina every Friday. So I've gotten to know the younger reps and the and the older ones So because everybody meets there on Fridays. I don't think it's really that much difference other than the volume of information and cases. You know, we had time to reflect. There is no time to reflect. you got to get to the next one. And if one, if one went wrong... That's basically put aside. I mean, it's probably a good thing not to dwell on it like we could back then. But it's also a learning experience that's gone because if we had a bad case, it wasn't that we were dwelling on it. We were just mulling it over and making sure it didn't happen again. You don't have that time now. This guy goes and sees his family. He comes to the scrub sink. He looks in the room, the patient's under, and he goes in the case. The digital templating has changed it. Remember, the interaction with the doctor was mostly before the case was at, at the light box. That's gone. It's all digital now. You know, either you get it on your computer as a sales rep, but you're not sitting there going, doctor, this thing looks like it's in backwards. Well, I'll be damned. It is. Okay. I'm glad we saw that before we went in. It's just, you know, you, you had a chance to, to talk. It's just not available anymore. To somebody, let's say your grandchild is coming to you right now, wanting to get into this space, what advice would you give him or her? It's still the most rewarding business I've ever known that that a history major could go into. And I I still love every bit of it. Yes, I would say absolutely. It's not going to be the same, but what is, you know, insurance and real estate are all different now because of the computers and stuff like that. But no, it's still a great life. Fred. You've just touched so many people's lives over the years. I just want to say, number one, thank you for that. Number two, just give you an opportunity. Is there any parting thought you want to share as we head out? I think that the main thing is just what I said before. If you decide to do this business, cherish it because it is a wonderful career. Don't do it for the money. Do it because it's the right thing to do. Great stuff, Fred. Appreciate you. 
appreciate everything you've done in your career, and uh, I know there's more to come. I will say this. If you're a young sales rep and you're not listening to Device Nation, shame on you. And I've told that a million times because every one of your episodes has a teaching moment. I'm not just blowing smoke. It's true. And I didn't pay you to say that. No, you didn't. But I mean, when I hear (laughs) some of the lions of this industry, it makes me swell up. And then you hear some of the young guys and how how much they appreciate the lions of this industry. Dirty little secret, Fred. I'm on the receiving end of that instruction just as much as the audience is. As a matter of fact, Kevin, I wrote every one of them a note and thanked them for doing that. They they took their time. Think about Tom Faring and the people that are local here and the people that you've talked to here. They didn't have to do that. Device Nation is the sales reps. It is just mandatory that everybody listen to that. You're in the car. You've got windshield time. Learn something. I mean, that was Larry Doar's last interview. How about that? I mean, not that it was planned that way, but yeah. I mean, that was Larry Doar's last two interviews. You had, him, you had two sessions with him. Yep. They need to appreciate that. They need to know what Larry Doar did. I remember when he and Bob Averill came within a whisper of a fist fight around a pool when we were at Osteonics and both of them turned their hats around backwards. And I said, somebody's going to get slugged here in a minute. And <laughs> I hung, I hung around to watch, but that's back. You know, they were probably fighting over 22 millimeter heads to 32 millimeter heads back then <laughs> or fixed, fixed, uh, you know, you, you know, unibody or whatever, you know, fixed head or, uh, right. or modular heads. I mean, it was, they, they were some passion going on back then. Yes. Kevin, thank you. And best to your family. And uh, I hope I see you up here soon. The man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Fred Anderson. So thankful he made time to share his inspiring life with us. Always thought he should have run for Senate. As few people can work a room like he can. I first met him at a sales meeting at our distributorship. Immediately just fell in love with a guy. Side note, want to know the most powerful element of any sales meeting? Give you a chance to think about it. I know what some of you are thinking, and you would be wrong. It is absolutely not listening to someone walk through their PowerPoint and read every excruciating word on every excruciating slide. It's not it at all. Look, if you want information from me, don't waterboard me. Just walk me through your 56-slide presentation. Reading everything that's on each slide, I will give you the information you want by the fifth slide. It's that simple. It's not that at all. The most powerful element of any sales meeting is that organic conversation. Before the whole thing got started, it occurred to me at one of these very meetings, as I listened to my colleagues talk, that the answer to my challenge could literally be just two tables away at that very meeting. What worked for you? What didn't work? What went wrong in the OR? How did you fix it? As you showed this product around, what resonated with the surgeons? What fell flat? You know, as I listened to Fred talk about how clinical we've gotten and how the personal has become a casualty, I just want you to know that that's one of the very reasons we are doing an in-person meeting for reps in his hometown. I tried to get his log cabin as a venue. No go. This October 7th and 8th, the answer to your issue is most likely just two tables away. And we're going to find that answer for you together, integrating another thing Fred mentioned, something that we just don't see that much of anymore in our space, surgeon mentorship. I want the younger reps to have something I had starting out in my career. So I'm offering you, the listener, an opportunity to be mentored by people like 
spine surgeon, Dr. A.J. Rush, the president of AUKUS, Dr. Brian Springer, Dr. Michael Ast of HSS, rising stars, Drs. Brian Culp and Richard Yoon, Duke Chair of Orthopedics, Dr. Michael Bolognese, Depew Superstar, Dr. Ryan Nunley. These surgeons are passionate about your success. When do these opportunities come along? Seriously, until now, basically never. So don't miss the early registration window. Go to medrepsociety.com and register today. I so look forward to meeting you and introducing you to some truly amazing people. Our next guest is someone I am so excited to introduce you to, an absolute living legend with just an incredible body of work behind him. Over 300 publications, Hewn Award, two Kappa Delta Clinical Research Awards. This man has served as president of more associations and societies than you can shake a stick at, the chair of orthopedics at Wake Forest Baptist Health. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dr. Andrew Komen. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. Dr. Komen, it is an honor and a privilege to have you on Device Nation as the body of work surrounding your 40-year career has earned you a granite likeness on the Mount Rushmore of orthopedics. I so look forward to asking you about your CV that, by the way, page count alone resembles War and Peace, the Wake Forest program, your role as chair of orthopedic surgery, external fixation, botulinum toxin. But first, let's go back to Winchester, Virginia. What was it like growing up in the Komen household? Well, I grew up in in a little town. I, I was born there. My father was a businessman that had a produce company and a, a milk plant in Strasburg, which was 15 miles away. And it was a little town that had not changed city limits since the Civil War. I went to school there at first through third grade at Hanley High School, and then I went to another school in Winchester, and then I did go to high school in, in Baltimore. But I basically lived there till I went to college. I always thought I would go back to Winchester. Winchester, interestingly, had a, a very illustrious medical history. It had the first medical school in Virginia that had students. First medical school in Virginia was College of William and Mary, which had a charter and had a dean, but never had a medical student. And then Holmes McGuire and, and several physicians from the University of Pennsylvania went to Winchester in the mid-1800s and started a medical school. I always thought it was a barber college, but it was actually a real medical school wow. uh, with, with the curriculum. And they trained students. It closed and then reopened and then after the Civil War, actually during the Civil War, Polk occupied Winchester and burned the medical school, and it never reopened. Holmes's son, Hunter McGuire, went on. He, he was there, and he went on to Medical College of Virginia and was one of the founders of Medical College of Virginia. But that didn't have much to do. I, I, you know, People ask me why I went into medicine. I, I don't really actually know. I just sort of decided I wanted to do it. No one in my family had ever been in medicine. And for some reason, I thought that I wanted to do pediatric orthopedics, which I ended up doing. I don't really know why, other than it sort of appealed to me. I never had an injury, an orthopedic injury. I, I never had any major injury at all until the last couple of years of my life, and those were not significant. But I did decide to go to medical school and ended up where I am. So you knew early on that orthopedics was the path you wanted to be on. Was there any kind of, you know, a lot of times I hear about woodworking or some other hobbies that kind of lent itself well to orthopedics. Was there any of that going on? No, not really. And, and I, I sort of decided that or, or thought that that's what I wanted to do in college. I took pre-med courses. I went to Duke. They didn't really have a pre-med major. You were a major in something. I ended up majoring in, in chemistry, but I actually had enough courses so that I could have actually majored in, in history. But somewhere 
my first, second year in college, I said, well, I think I'll go to medical school. And someone asked me one day, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I think I'll do pediatric orthopedic surgery. At that point, thinking back, I mean, I had no idea what it really was, but somehow I ended up doing it anyway. You spent a lot of time in Durham, North Carolina. Tell us about your experience there. Well, I was there 15 years. I went there as an undergraduate and went to medical school. Ended up staying on the, as a resident there. I did a fellowship there and was on the faculty for 18 months before I moved to Winston-Salem. You basically could have punched your ticket anywhere after your experience at Duke. Why did you choose to go into academic medicine? I had always thought that I would go back to Winchester, but I sort of out-trained Winchester. When I finished medical school, at that time, our curriculum was sort of interesting that we did all of our basic science the first year, and then we did all of our basic clinical rotations the second year. And the third year, we went back and did elective basic science or research. And then your fourth year, you did elective clinical. And you could go straight through. We had essentially six quarters a year with a week off in between, and you could take a quarter off if you wanted, but most of my classmates and I either went five and some of us went six quarters a year, so everybody finished early. Um, because of that, they, they created uh, what they called an early internship program. This is before they were PGY-1s, but they were essentially PGY-1s, and they existed in medicine, surgery, and pediatrics. Because I was interested in doing pediatric orthopedics, I, I did a, the PGY-1 or intern early internship in pediatrics. So I did a year as a pediatric resident, which was in, incredibly beneficial, but it, it was part of medical school. So my medical school, final year of medical school and my first year of residency were the same year, which is a little bit confusing on my CV. But my graduation date from medical school is the same date as my completion of my PGY one year. Then I did a year of general surgery, and, and then I did orthopedics. And while I was doing orthopedics, Dr. Goldner, who was the chair then, knew about my interest in pediatrics. And so I spent time at the Greenville Shriners Hospital. Uh, I spent six months there, and then I spent a year where I was the pediatric orthopedic coverage at Clinic Baker Children's Hospital, and, and but and did some general along the way, general orthopedics and trauma, but did pediatrics. So I had a significant pediatric experience. But while I was there, we were one of the few programs in the in the world doing microsurgery. Jim Urbanic and Don Bright had sort of pioneered replantation and microsurgery. So I joined the replantation team, which was how you got into doing that. Because I felt that it was an opportunity that uh, I just wanted to take advantage of. It was sort of unique. And so I did a, a lot of microsurgery, replantation, and hand surgery. When I finished, they really, most people were not doing fellowships in pediatrics. There were a couple, but they really didn't start for a few years later. But you really needed a hand fellowship to practice hand surgery and be a member of the hand society. So I did a, a hand fellowship, and then I joined the faculty. What was the state of medical training like at the beginning of your career? Any different? It was a little bit different, but it wasn't hugely different. I mean, we didn't have an 80-hour work week, but to, to in looking back, sometimes we worked more than 80 hours, but most of the time we didn't. And when we were working more than 80 hours, it was mostly because we were doing emergencies that you really don't have much choice. And even now, emergencies have a little bit of an excuse keeping the patient of emergency care. It's one of the, the few indications for violating an 80-hour work week in, in residency or fellowship. There was not the deluge of information from the internet. There were fewer journals. The, the, the 
body of knowledge was a little more finite, which made it a little bit easier in terms of, of your feeling of, of comfort as you, as you went along, you know, how, how to distill what's important from all of the chatter that's out there. The operations were different. They, they evolved, but, uh, the, the training in and of itself, you spent, you spent time in the clinic office seeing patients. You spent time in the anatomy lab doing anatomy research. You went to conferences and journal clubs and you operated and took all. It, it really was not a whole lot different. You like to look back when it was maybe a little bit harder. There, there were fewer of us. The concentration of trauma was a little bit higher since there were fewer trauma centers and, and North Carolina, but you know, I look at it, it's very similar. Challenges, not problems so much. It's the challenges that I think students, uh, learners have now is just there is so overwhelmingly much information that distilling that and obtaining an absolute core amount of, of basic knowledge, which you have to have, and learning how to critically think and to utilize all this information is. It, it, it's more challenging, no question about that. I remember like it was yesterday when 60 Minutes did that story on the 80-hour week. I, I'm just curious. Do you think it was a, a step forward when medicine decided to make that change? Most of the time we didn't do 80 hours. I mean, I look back and, you know, in general surgery, you know, you, did, you worked every other day. I mean, it, it, that that was fairly on, onerous, but, uh, I mean, it, it interfered with your life. It right. wasn't wasn't anywhere near as dangerous as it was led on, which is sort of interesting. And some of that has to do with surgical disciplines versus medical disciplines. And, you know, other than and then the, my year of pediatrics, obviously, I've on surgery. But, you know, PGY1s don't make critical decisions about operations. Uh, if they're t- tired, they're in the operating room, but they're not doing major portions of operations. Um, I don't think that uh, I, I think that it was not necessary to, for people to work that hard to learn that 80 hours is probably plenty. They do it for continuation of care, but I would submit we should do some of it for continuation of education, uh, where you can be there and not be punished, that you don't have to make critical decisions, you don't have to write out write orders, but you get an opportunity to observe and to, and to learn. What we do, to a large extent, we learn from experience, at least the surgical aspects of what we do, so there's some value. If you haven't seen something, it's much harder to extrapolate that from a book than it is to, to learn it from face-to-face. If you look at Gladwell's you know, writings, you know that you do need a huge amount of, of just time doing stuff to be proficient. I think the concept that people that are tired can do things that can make mistakes, that's correct, but it's hard to imagine that even if you uh, forget something without hurting someone, that you learn something that you never would have learned, that that, that is so evil. But I do understand that it has to be a little bit black and white or people will abuse it. So I would hate to see us go down to less than 80 hours that's being done in some countries because ultimately you just won't have enough experience to be proficient. After a short stint on the Duke faculty, you would head for Wake Forest where you've worked from 1981 to this day. I got to ask, what inspired you to pack your bags and head west? Well, ironically or uh, consistently, it was pediatric orthopedics. So, you know, you think back at that point in time, uh, there were nine faculty at Duke. I was in 
eighth and ninth faculty member there, and I was there, we hired another person. So maybe when I left, there were 10. Uh, when I came here, I was the fifth faculty member. A very dear friend of mine was a resident ahead of me, was hired before I was hired to do pediatric orthopedics, and uh, Leonard Goldner was doing pediatrics. And um, so I was really not doing much pediatric orthopedics. I was going to some children's clinics, and uh, but I really wasn't. I was doing 90% hand surgery, which, which I loved doing, but I wanted to do more uh, pediatrics. And I was approached by Gary Paling, uh, uh, who had been my chief, one of my chief residents, who was at Lake Forest, then was Bowman Gray School of Medicine. He said, would you be interested? We're looking for someone to run pediatrics, uh, to run uh, uh, microsurgery, and to coordinate our research labs. Would you be interested in doing that? And I talked to my wife, and she said, no, you're not really going to move. I said, well, how about Winston-Salem? And she said, well, Winston-Salem would be okay. So anyway, I came over here, and, and it gave me an opportunity to continue to do hand surgery, microsurgery, to uh, run the lab, and to um, do, pe- do pediatric orthopedics. They had someone doing pediatric spine, which I was not especially interested in doing. I, I had done some, but what I really wanted to do was congenital hand and cerebral palsy and congenital deformities. So it was sort of a dream job. I came over. Richard Janeway was then the dean at that point. He was the longest serving dean in the United States, and I met with him, and he talked to me about it and asked me what I wanted. And I said, well, you know, what I really like is what you've offered me. I'd like a lab and for you to provide a tech in a lab for three years. And I named it, you know, a salary. And he said, well, you can have all those, but you can't have the salary for a couple of years. And so I can't. Am I remembering Dr. Janeway correct? Didn't he have a role on the Little Rascals or something like that? He he did. He did. Uh, He was on the Little Rascals as a child. Wow. What was the state of the union of the orthopedic program at Wake Forest when you got there? We had five. I was the fifth faculty. When I came, I did total knees because for a year till somebody came back who had done second generation total knees. We had 15 residents and we worked out of North Carolina Baptist Hospital. Very busy clinical practice. We had a lab. One of our senior faculty uh, had an NIH grant. It was an incredibly collegial environment where you, you knew everyone and it really worked well together. Well, you certainly helped create an amazing orthopedic program there. Tell us about some of the subspecialty fellowships that y'all offer now. When I came, I was the fifth orthopedic surgeon. We now have six, I think, 68 orthopedic surgeons, and um, we now have five residents a year. We'll come back to this because you asked about the fellowships. But now we have fellowships in trauma. We have fellowship in hand and microsurgery, fellowships in sports medicine, and adult reconstruction total joint. Well, that program has certainly experienced tremendous growth over the years. Congratulations on that. Uh, what do you attribute it to? Well, North Carolina is growing. The medical center is growing. We provided subspecialty care. Now there's lots of subspecialty care when it still was an environment of predominantly generalists. But to go back to our, tra- to our training, I would like to, you know, one of the things that we're, we're very proud of Tom Smith, his PhD, who ran our lab for many years, Gary Paling, who was the chair before me and who absolutely recruited me and got me here and kept me here. And I started 20 some years ago, we started a physician scientist program where we 
hire every year. One year we hire two medical graduates. So these are fully trained MDs or DOs who come and do two years of structured research linked to our residency. In that program, we've had some people that came that already had PhDs, but we have trained, I think now 14. We had one last week to get a PhD. We have trained more MD-PhDs than any department at Wake Forest. And a significant percentage of, and that's pretty easy because there aren't that many, but of the MD-PhDs in the United States in orthopedics actually trained with us and were residents. That's been been a, a very gratifying program where we've trained people to get PhDs that are focused in the field that they're actually going to spend their life practicing in. Many of the MD PhDs in medical school get their PhD in something that is not applicable to their clinical pathway. And this has been very exciting. I was reading a bio on Dr. Eric Dorf, who came from the program, and here's an excerpt. After completing his orthopedic surgery residency at the University of Virginia, Dr. Dorf completed his hand and upper extremity fellowship with the renowned president of the American Society for Surgery of the Hand, Dr. Andrew Komen at Wake Forest University. During this single year of additional training, Dr. Dorf performed over 1,000 upper extremity surgical procedures. Sounds like the program has been quite busy over the years. It is. It, it waxes and wanes like all things do. Obviously, we've been impacted by COVID and by the lack of nurses, but we have an incredibly vibrant, prolific practice that emphasizes patient care, that we try to do clinically relevant research. I think we must succeed for the most part, and that we educate rather than clinically use our residents and fellows to care for their next generation. Well, doctor, I heard some uh, news. I understand you're stepping down as chair of the orthopedic program this year. Take us on a tour of your tenure in that position. We'd love to hear some highlights. We are searching for, for a chair of orthopedics. I'm not part of the search committee, obviously, but I've understand they're incredibly good applicants and they're in the process of doing that. Um, obviously, I'm chair in, until the, the new chair is appointed and, and arrives. And then at least for the next year, I'm going to continue to run the Musculoskeletal Institute service line. And then we'll sort of see. I'm looking forward to slowing down and be able to go back and do a little more teaching and a little less administration and a little less management of people and a little more strategic planning and development of opportunities for the future. Looking back, as, as we talked a little bit about it, we are a significant portion of Atrium Health right now that almost a year and a half ago, two years ago, we formally united with Atrium Health. And so we are now Atrium Health Lake Forest Baptist. That's been very interesting. I've had opportunity to work with the Atrium leadership. T. Mormon, who is the head of orthopedic and president of the Musculoskeletal Institute in Charlotte and I right now coordinate the enterprise aspects of musculoskeletal and, and that's been, been incredibly exciting dealing with our 55 hospitals and you know, over 100 facilities where musculoskeletal care is provided in four states, five states. But our department itself has tripled in size in the volumes of, of everything just in the last 15 years. So that's been quite gratifying. What's been your favorite aspect of that position, working with the fellows or a combination of other things? I think working with everybody. I mean, the great part of this is that we are a team. While I'm the chair and I guess presumptive leader, I work for them. And and it's been fairly interesting. Earlier in in the month, I was talking to people about leadership. And, And if you look historically at medicine, go back to the 19th 
early 20th century, leadership was by dictum. You had the professor, and you did what they said, or you left. In the middle of the 20th century, middle to second, third of the, of the 20th century, which is when I came here, you really led by example. You know, you worked hard, and everybody would work hard. That was sort of the feeling. And, but once you get to be over 5, 10, 15 faculty members of the team, they don't even see how you're working because you're too big. Right. And so in leading this team, I, I do it through sort of a negotiation process. This is what the medical center needs. This is what our patients need. This is what the department needs. This is what you've done. What would you like to do? What did you do last year that you're proud of? What didn't you do and what kept you from doing it? And then when you put all that together, it's pretty easy. You say, well, what would you like to do? What would you like to achieve? What would you like to, to make? What would you like to accomplish? For the most part, you can say, that's great. If you will do this and that in addition to what you're doing now, we'll give you all this. And then my job is to help them to implement that. Lead by negotiation. What do you want to do? What I need to have done? Ask them what it is they want to do. And then if that's at all reasonable, give it to them. If they can give you what your patients need. And then my job is to follow them and to do the best I can to give them the resources to be successful. As you prepare to hand that orb and scepter off, Dr. Komen, what do you want your legacy to have been? I used to think that people remember much uh, of you personally. I, I would hope that the legacy would be that we left something that was stable enough and vibrant enough to build on and to exist into perpetuity. Well, Dr. Komen, let's explore that legacy for a bit. Over 300 publications and four books spanning your career. Let's stop right there for a second. If you had to pick out a couple that you're particularly proud of, what would they be? The work we did in botulinum toxin obviously is incredibly gratifying. Leonard Goldner taught me how to care for cerebral palsy patients, and it's, it's always been a significant passion of mine to take care of children and adults with cerebral palsy. Unfortunately, the most underserved population in the United States with severe disabilities are adults with cerebral palsy. Children are pretty well cared for, but adults are neglected because many children's hospitals don't see them after they're 20, 25, and so there are not a lot of people that are available that have expertise in dynamic and static deformities that occur with cerebral palsy. So I'd always been interested in, in that. A very good friend of mine, we were playing golf one day, and he's a pediatric ophthalmologist, and he told me about a technique that Alan Scott at the Smith-Kettlewell Eye Institute was using. It was what's called oculinum. Long before any companies had bought it, it was Smith-Kettlewell Smith Institute was doing it, and he was using uh, botulinum toxin, which works by blocking snare proteins, which causes a flaccid paralysis. It doesn't actually stop spasticity, and kids with strabismus don't have spasticity, or uh, many don't. Some do, but most don't. Uh, and so he was using it to balance muscle forces around the eye, and so hmm. I waited a little bit and thought about what my friend had said, and finally I said, asked him what he was talking about, and so he explained it a little bit more. And I thought, well, maybe I could balance muscle forces across joints in cerebral palsy, which is part of the problem. The spasticity causes an imbalance, and there's continued abnormal positioning, and that causes muscles to shorten and contract, and then causes bones to, and joints to deform. So I called Alan Scott a little bit later, and he said, well, nobody's used this in cerebral palsy. But if you send me a protocol, I'll send you some drugs. And that's how it all started. We got a small grant from the Cerebral Palsy United Way 
and when in Salem. We did a 12-patient trial, and then we were working on some other trials, all you know, under Dr. Scott's IRB through the FDA, because at that point it was not FDA approved. I mean, we were approved to use it, but it was no, it couldn't be used except under our protocols or other people's protocols. And then one of the big drug companies uh, that many of the people listening will know what it is bought it, and one of their vice presidents called me and said, what are you doing with it? And I told them, and the net result was is that we designed the trials for its use in cerebral palsy for, for that company and coordinated the trials and trained people from all over the world and how to use it and got the worldwide labels and indications for the use of botulinum toxins in cerebral palsy, which is, it was incredibly exciting. We actually changed the paradigm by which all children are treated with cerebral palsy in much of the world. Dr. Komen, tell us about the sympathectomy technique for refractory Raynaud's syndrome that is the standard procedure for peripheral and periarterial sympathectomy today. That was actually a great deal of fun. We were doing in the, in the early 90s, Tom Smith and I had a NIH grant looking at alpha adrenergic receptors as part of my upper extremity surgery. And that ironically fits exactly into peripheral sympathectomies as well as a little bit into how spasticity works. One of the problems with refractory Raynaud's is that patients get ulcers that don't heal on their fingers, they end up in amputations, and they have significant pain. Part of that can be from, it occurs from two reasons. One, they have true arterial insufficiency where they have blood clots and just don't have enough blood flow into their hand and their fingers die. And that can only really be relieved by reconstructing the arteries. But there are patients who have non-reconstructable arteries who have adequate flow, it's diminished, not normal, but adequate flow, the components of that flow are inappropriately distributed through AV shunts, so they don't actually go to nutritional beds and the cells die and skin die. Adrian Flatt had described many, many, you know, a decade before we were working on this, the periarterial sympathectomy in the finger. And that was further verified and the technique improved by Shaw Wilgus. That operation required that you operate on each finger out on the the fingertip itself and that you had to do each finger separately. The work that we had done with alpha-adrenergic receptors and looking at blood flow suggested to me that if that we could get a similar effect by doing surgery at the wrist and in the palm where we could do in areas that had better blood flow, would heal more quickly and provide a much larger bed, all the fingers or half the fingers and or half the hand uh, with an operation that was a little bit easier to do, was easier on the patient and would provide similar or improved outcomes. Your hand is, is a very interesting structure. It's a thermal regulatory regulates your, your temperature, your body temperature, keeps you from getting too hot. So it's thermoregulatory, it's tactile, it feels, it tells you what's going on and its function. Because of the thermoregulatory component, in normal circumstances, 80% of the blood flow in your hand is not nutritional. So you can have a significant compromise of total blood flow, and if you can, can direct that flow to the right areas, you can decrease pain with Raynaud's and improve healing. That's really how, how this, this works. It basically fools your body into doing what it should do that it doesn't do because it has 
the Raynaud's disorder. Ironically, all of the work that we were doing in spasticity, looking at and alpha-adrenergic receptors, even though they two on the surface very disparate areas, that how could they have anything to do with each other, actually had a, a very significant common denominator in how they affect blood flow to the, to the hand and fingers. One condition most of us reps know about is distal radius fractures, a name we're very familiar with. Back in 1902, Lambot developed the first external fixator. I'd love to hear your perspective on the historical arc of external fixation versus plating for these. Either fortunately or unfortunately, I got to go through it all from when I trained. You only you had to fail cast applications. We put pins in plaster and then external fixators, which still across the world, external fixators are used significantly to internal external fixation, bridge plating, and then open reduction internal fixation with dorsal plates and bowler plates. So I've watched all of that, including arthroscopic assisted and percutaneous. What's common to them all is, is that distal radius fractures require that you obtain an appropriate reduction that you provide stability, which can be provided either by the fracture itself or by pins and plates, uh, and then that you then neutralize the deforming forces across that fixed, hopefully stabilized fracture so that it can heal. Before we had external fixators, we reduced them. We relied on the stability of the fracture. And then we use chaos to provide neutralization or to provide a little bit of extra stability. External fixators made a huge difference because they then gave us a way to give to do in, in specific fractures that we could stabilize them and neutralize them. But the problem with external fixators are is that the farther away you are from the fracture site with the pin, the less stability you have at the fracture site or, or the uh, less tolerance you have just because of the level of so external fixtures work really well, but on some they don't. Sometimes they need a pin to provide some stability, and then they become neutralization devices. If you put plates directly on the under the skin, right on the bone, it can be a, a very effective neutralization device for stability. But right now, the bowler blocking plate and the bowler plate, which provides after reduction, gives you both stability and neutralization. Uh, um, is is what's being used more, more and more. The basic principles are all the same. It's reduction, stability, neutralization. Which modality you use depends on the character of, of the fracture and the needs of the patient's patient and your expertise. I have had an opportunity to, to watch that evolve. It's been quite fascinating as I've watched multiple times where people have ignored one of those three requirements. And of course, then their device or their technique failed. You're taking me down memory lane, Dr. Komen. I, I remember the AG wrist jack, the Clyburn external fixator, uh, when EBI came out with theirs. Uh, as you look back down the corridor of shiny metal things, is there one particular X fix that you thought stood out from everybody else's? The most novel and was the AG that gave you the ability to correct in multiple planes, uh, was incredibly dynamic in its use. We did a lot, lot of those. What stood out was that obviously the AG fixator, then wrist arthroscopy when paling and loft and Terry Whipple presented arthroscopic assisted reduction and fixation where they used pins or they, or they put fixators on. And then of course, nothing in the history of distal radius fractures would be complete without George Orbe 
contribution to you know, volo locking plates, which revolutionized the approach. It put the plate directly next to the fracture. It gave multiple points of, of fixation after you had done reduction and it obviously provided neutralization and put it on the volar side where it was under muscle and not irritating tendon and the skin. I understand you had a hand, pun intended, in developing an external fixator? I did. We developed one that allowed correct, allowed distraction and correction in two planes for longitudinal deficiency, the radius or radial club hand that's used around the world. I don't get any royalties on that. They built it for me and we used it. The institution got early on a little bit of support. Any patents while we're talking about creating things that the audience should know about? Well, I have a patent on that, uh, although I don't, I don't get royalties on it. <laughs> uh, and we have patents on the appropriate dosing for botulinum toxin patent pending on a coding application that will facilitate coding where you actually get true descriptors of what the problem is rather than tendon injury risk. You get the real diagnosis and then you get the, the codes that, that we designed to improve care, not just billing. But we have this, I think, very unfortunate process and the way that the AMA has designed ICD-10 and ICD-10 coding is good, but it's not linked to CPT coding directly enough. And so the CPT coding is very imprecise in terms of the exact structures and even the side, but it tells you what you did. So we sort of link something that will improve patient care by giving real information and make it more efficient to provide that information, which I think is pretty exciting. You founded the North Carolina Society for Surgery of the Hand in 1999. This organization is still going strong after all these years. In 1999, there, there were 50 hand surgeons in North Carolina. We thought, well, if there are 50 hand surgeons at that point, you know, we were the 12th most populous state, and now we're ninth or 10th, and so well, it would be good. And I had been working with the North Carolina Orthopedic President, and I said, why don't we link these organizations? I think it would be very synergistic. So with the help of the North Carolina Orthopedic, we started the North Carolina Society of Surgeons Hand, which most years, when it's possible, meets the day before the North Carolina Orthopedic, brings together hand surgeons from North Carolina, the guest speaker, when possible, stays and speaks at the North Carolina Orthopedic. So it supports our state orthopedic society as well as the hand surgeons. Members of the North Carolina Society of Surgeons Hand are not just orthopedic surgeons. It includes plastic surgeons and general surgeons. And it's open to anyone that has a real interest in hand surgery. Uh, the residents and fellows attend, and it's uh, been a very nice organization. As you look back over your career, sir, is there any particular procedure that you really look forward to doing? I'm very fortunate in orthopedic surgery and upper extremity and taking care of kids and adults with hand problems. Everything is very rewarding. I do have to say that not operating sometimes is incredibly rewarding as well that we had talked about botulinum toxin and one of the patients early on we treated with botulinum toxin for Aquinas foot deformity toe walking and we never operated on her. Most of them we did operate on. We never had to operate on her. There are a few that you can actually treat them with toxin and never operate on them. But she was five or five and a half and one day I came home and on my answering machine she had called me and said, Dr. Coleman, I just wanted you to know that I rode, rode my bike today for the first time without training wheels. Wow. 
But another one that was talking about moving is a young woman many years ago who was at one of the local schools and had an unfortunate accident and cut her hand off at the wrist, her left hand. We put her hand back on. She did very well, and I got to be fairly close with her, as you might imagine. Randy Parks, who was a PA, worked with me for many years. That We were invited to her wedding, where they put the wedding ring on the hand that we had replanted. Now, that's rewarding. A lot of awards on your CV, Dr. Komen. The Nobel Peace Prize of Orthopedics, I've heard it referred to. The Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America's Hune Award. Tell us about that. The Hune Award is something that I'm actually very proud of. I'm very gratified and proud of being honored by everybody. The Hune Award is a very interesting award in that it's given to someone for their accomplishment and their projected future contributions and accomplishments. Oh, wow. And so I always like that. And, and, I, and I looked at it and I said, well, that's a challenge. You know, you've given me this award, but you've also told me that I'm supposed to not stop. <laughs> right. So I, I hope I lived up to that one. Well, tell us about the honorary doctorate from Athens, Greece, of all places. We trained through the years a, a lot of surgeons from Greece here. There are several institutions in the United States where they've done that at Duke, Pittsburgh, here. And it, and it was very nice. They, they invited Dr. Caucus was the chair at the University of Athens, and as acknowledgement of, of the services that we've done, they invited me to Athens and gave me the doctorate. So it, uh, although it's all in Greek on the wall, I can't, I can't read it. <laughs> uh, no, I'm going to embarrass you here, but i got to brag on you a little bit more. Kappa Delta Orthopedic Research and Education Foundation Clinical Research Award times two. What an honor. The James Byron Distinguished Faculty Mentor Award. The He for She Award. And I could go on and on and I on. I was just a runner-up in that one. But the others are, I mean, obviously, the key awards in, in orthopedic research are the Kappa Delta ORES, and we were very fortunate. I mean, I was fortunate to have a team that allowed us to put that together. And we got those for basically our career work in the botulinum toxins and cerebral palsy, both the basic and clinical science stuff. And then we also got it uh, for microvascular physiology and the upper extremity vascular. It was very nice for both of those special areas of, of interest to, to be acknowledged by that body. Well, doctor, when I look over your career, I don't see a lot of spare time in there, but I know you do carve out time, especially for the kids, grandchildren, and I understand there's some Lionel trains in the middle of that somewhere. When I grew up, I did some trains with my grandfather. I did American Flyer. And about five years ago, my grandson went with me to the attic, and he found this box of trains. And he, as four-and-a-half-year-olds do, he was you know, rooting through these boxes and uh, turned to me and said, these are trains. I said, yes. He said, well, they run. Well, we never, we never made those run. But somehow I got involved in building trains for them. I have a new grandson who's 11 days old. So as the two now, my grandson and granddaughter, as they get less and less, hopefully he'll want to do that. What's very interesting is his mother is very interested in trains. The mother of the, of the newborn, and he gets a little older. We can keep doing that. But I do that and I play golf. And, you know, you talked about 80 hour work weeks. Uh, you know, there's plenty of time if, if you focus to deal with everything. You know, I never got a Lionel train under the Christmas tree as a young man, but I do remember the commercials and I remember smoke coming out of that train. And I've always wanted to ask somebody, how did they do that? Well, I don't do the smoke on them. Okay. You know, the, 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 uh, the diesels, obviously, they, some of them have smoke. Most of them don't. Yeah. Steam engines. They have, there's a little heater in there with a resistor, 
and right. you put these pellets in there. It's interesting, but you know, it just fogs up the room. Right. <laughs> if you do it, then little kids keep wanting you to do more of it. So but the new trains are in- incredibly interesting. I mean, they, they have you know, all these remotes and you can do on the internet and, and uh, they have modules in them where the crew talks and, and tells you what's going on. I mean, wow. it, it's pretty interesting, but I got involved with it. And, and I guess I tend to overdo stuff, but uh, I'm trying to get somebody besides my my grandson and I are the only ones that know how to turn everything on. So, Dr. Komen, you've seen so much come across the train tracks of your career. Any advice to the, the freshman class surgeons just starting to, to build a practice now? That's a very interesting thing. You know, what advice do you give people? And what I would say is, one, that you need to walk through life and look around. That the questions remain the same, but the answers keep changing, and you need to be aware of that. Things that seem to be a challenge are often an incredible opportunity. I mean, I look back, and you need to take advantage of little things and to follow them through. And, and that would be my major advice. Look around. If things are interesting and don't seem to make sense, question them and follow through and finish what you start. Many years ago, I was with a good friend, Andy Weiland, who had his pan surgery and special surgery after a very distinguished career at Hopkins. And, you know, and I asked him, I said, you know, what do you attribute your success to in terms of all your accomplishments? And he said, I try to finish 50 plus percent of everything I start. And I've always remembered that. And if you think about it, Orthopedic surgeons, physicians, people in general are really good at starting things. But think how many times you start them and never finish them. You never get the references. You never bother to do the final public, the final draft. You never submit it. You never follow up on the questions. And that's very common. One, look around. And two, try to finish the things that you start. Great advice, sir. A lot of reps listen to this show, and I'm confident you've seen your share over the years come through your operating room. Any advice to them? How can they bring maximum value to the surgeon and to the facility these days, you think? You know, just keep an open mind and do what's right and be persistent. Years ago, I had a, a very close friend. He did orthotics, and, and we didn't use them, but he went every children's clinic with me. He never said, you, you don't order stuff from us. He never said anything. He just came. If kids needed something, he helped them. He called the other group that provided it. Ultimately, he became the major provider of orthotics for our entire medical center. Wow. All he did was he came and helped. He was there. He was always cheerful. He did whatever was best for the patient, whether it made him any money or not. And in the end, he got it all. That's frameable. That's frameable stuff right there. Dr. Komen, quick recap. You've trained over 250 residents and fellows, over 2,000 talks, president of seven ortho educational organizations, editor of JSOA, two Kappa Delta Awards. We talked about that earlier. AAOS Lifetime Achievement Award, coordinating 85 clinical faculty. What's next for you? To watch the next generation take advantage of it all and to help them however I can. Well, what an honor, sir, to chisel your likeness into the podcast Mount Rushmore of Orthopedic. Greats. Thank you so much, Dr. Coleman. You're very welcome. You have a great day. 
Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was not a tour knee kit. That wasn't the Tour de France. That was a Tour de Force. What an impressive conversation today. Took a lot of notes. We still have so much to learn from those around us, do we not? Thank you, Dr. Komen and Fred Anderson, for coming on the show and sharing your inspiring lives and your sage words of wisdom. Two things that Dr. Komen said that really jumped out of my biodynamic headphones. The questions remain the same. It's just the answers that change. And secondly, things that seem to be a challenge are often an incredible opportunity. True that. And I so look forward to exploring the answers to both of those points collaboratively with you at the meeting in October. Remember, that answer is probably just two tables away from you. I hope you have an awesome week. Wish you great success in your selling endeavors this week and look forward to seeing you next time.